Welcome to Sard's Podcast Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversation. I'm Mariah Young, and I'm with Kevin Monk, Managing Director of Sard. We both love great technology coupled with great customer service. The main aim of Sard is to help improve the NHS, England's public health service. Healthcare and IT are ever-changing, and we are interested in the ways that we can help it evolve with the growing population. In this episode, we are fortunate enough to have Peter McGraw joining us. Peter is a behavioral economist and global expert in the scientific study of humor. Among his public appearances as a speaker, Peter is also a professor who teaches MBA courses at the University of Colorado Boulder, University of California, San Diego, and London Business School. Peter recently released his book, Shtick to Business, which is about looking at famous comedians breaking down their process to create humor and applying that to help you build a successful career. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm curious about which is, you know, is there a place for more informality and hinting at the doggy playbell in in a company, uh, as well as the the idea, the concepts behind introducing things that comedians do in their in their sketches. So they're just the creative processes, you know, the one pager that you described in there and things like that. Yeah, I'm totally on board with that. So I'm sympathetic to the idea that organizations want to foster let's call it a sense of humor, a playfulness, a, some levity in, in the workplace. And, and why wouldn't they, right? I mean, it's, this is something that is highly valued. It's one of the top things that we look for in friends and partners. Um, it's something that we pursue in our entertainment choices, how we spend a Friday night. It, it affects who we, who we target when we're at a conference or you know, show up at, at, um, at lunch at work. And so, so this is a highly valued skill and it's a, it's an incredibly important experience to have. And so why not, you know, is sort of the idea. And I wouldn't say that, that organizations shouldn't pursue it at all. You know, it's, I'm an academic, so I, I can acknowledge some of the complexities of this. So, so I would say is that if an organization is interested in getting the value from humor, from a light workplace, it has to be something that, first of all, comes from the very top, it has to be highly valued. And ideally, that person or persons have that skill to begin with. That is that they can model it um, and that they can sort of show how to use it in a way that is helpful and not hurtful. Because the thing that comes up time and time again in, in my work is that even well-intentioned humor attempts can miss. And they don't always miss on the boring side mm -hmm. of the equation, so to speak. That is that the jokes can very easily go awry. And, and there's a variety of reasons for that. One, of course, is that when we tell a joke, we tend to use our own sense of humor to judge the goodness of it. And we often fail. There's what we call an empathy gap. We don't understand that our audience may not share that same perspective. Let's assume for a moment that, that an organization is committed to this, that a that a founder CEO type is committed to, to trying to reap some of the benefits of it. Well, then I think this is a matter of culture building foremost. And, and it is a way to do this where you're building kind of a safe, encouraging space, right? So a, a space where people are allowed to experiment mm -hmm. and they're allowed to fail, but they have to know some ground rules, I think, associated with that. So one, for example, is when you fail, it is not your audience's fault, which is a, ten, a natural tendency. I mean, I, like, I see it with elite professional comics where they are telling jokes, an audience is not laughing, and then they start to 
talked down to. I don't know if I can curse on this podcast. Yeah, go for it. They, they shit. They begin to shit talk their audience, yeah. which has the opposite effect. Which is like, now I'm definitely not going to laugh at your jokes because now I don't even like you anymore. Yeah. And so, so this idea of being quick to apologize, quick to acknowledge, a culture in which mistakes are allowed as long as they're well intentioned. They're not, you don't hide behind. It's just a joke. So, so the culture, but another thing about, about this is that it is something that you look to select on, that it becomes an important part of a hiring decision. Mm. And that is that, that you look for people who are adept. That is they have either the, the kind of skills to sort of be fun, be funny, or they have the skills to sort of let funny happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that, and, and I've seen this, uh, I can't remember the bank. I think it was TD Bank. You can't quote me on this, but this is American Bank. When they were conducting their interviews, they were looking for their candidates to laugh or smile in the first 15 seconds of the interview. And the reason that they were doing that was because they wanted, you know, they were hiring bank tellers. These are people who are on the front lines and they were looking to differentiate themselves Mm. as a welcoming bank. How often do you go to a bank and it just feels like the post office, right? which is the least welcoming place where you have people (laughs) who don't even want you to be there. You know, you're in the way of their Mm -hmm. coffee break. And so, so if you make it an important part of your hiring decisions beyond the obvious things, what are the skills that folks want? Then I think you have a fighting chance to make this work, but it has to be a very thoughtful effort. And I am just reluctant to this idea of like, let's pull this lever and increase hilarity in the workplace. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we don't necessarily look for a sense of humor in every member of our workforce, right? Because people bring different skills, like someone's creative, someone's artistic, someone's technically capable. But in in my sort of preamble email to you, one of the things I brought up was that I built this sort of white elephant project in the past and I had to throw it away and I'd, I'd invest a lot of time. And then bear in mind, I'm the boss. And then one of my engineers in one of our away days comes to me and says, oh no, is this going to be the finance app 2.0? And the, and the kind of jokey way that he conveyed that to me was acting like the court jester. I see Rory mm-hmm. Stavalend, who I'm a big fan of, and actually doesn't live far from us in England. He sort of gives a nod to this idea of the court jester and, and somebody who's got that skill set to know when it's the right point to make a joke and they can then challenge authority like the, the the jester was the only person who could speak truth to the king that sort of thing I, I like that idea i'm not against that idea it's so my premise is we don't want everyone trying to be funny like so you know some of this came out of me doing professional speaking you know i'm mm-hmm. standing in front of a, a room full of 500 people talking about the the virtues of of comedy and i just couldn't have all 500 people go back to work and try to be the court jester. Mm. Right. You know, the, like these are people who are who should be selected and developed based upon this unique skill. You know, it's a it's a challenging one. And so I do agree with you. I think, you know, there's obviously there's a long history of comedy speaking truth to power, to being entertaining, to being a lubricant. And and so when you have that person or that small group of people who are adept, who are overskilled, then I'm like. Okay, that's fine. Again, as long as they play by the ground rules, Mm. which is they're not the arbiter of funny. The audience is. Mm. They need to be quick to apologize. 
So I went and saw Dave Chappelle and friends in Yellow Springs, Ohio recently. Mm. So I, w- I went out to the Midwest. He's holding these, he was holding these pop-up comedy sort of comedy shows, socially distant outside in a cornfield. And he was hosting it. And he, he told this story where he was at the supermarket. His Netflix special, Sticks and Stones, had just won three Emmys. Mm-hmm. And, and it, but it had been panned by the critics. And so he used that moment to basically to shit on the critics for a little while. Mm-hmm. And he, he told me, he told me, he told all of us, it felt like he was speaking to me about a woman who approached him in the parking lot of the supermarket and was chastising him for some of the things that he had said in that. It's a controversial like special. And he said, I'm going to listen to you. But one thing that I want to point out is you watched my special. You turned it on and you watched my special. I didn't follow you into the parking lot right. <laughs> yeah. to tell you those jokes. <laughs> and, yep. and so I, I think there is this sort of notion about who's signing up for what. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and being and being um, being cognizant. Now, to your point. I like those people. I like your court jester. I don't know this guy, but I know I like him. And I also know that I liked having folks like that on a team mm. because your ability to do that not only is to speak truth to power, not is it only to hold my boss in check, but it also is those are people who are, which is the point of shift to business, among the most creative people. Like I want that person solving lots and lots of problems mm-hmm. because if they can solve a problem where they can be cheeky with you mm-hmm. and, and, um, and tease you a little bit and set some boundaries on the boss, I suspect they're going to be useful solving a bunch of other problems. Oh yeah, sure. And, and he is, and he's a great, great guy. Here's the other one. And this is something that I am, I'm awfully sensitive about. And that is the, the asymmetry between how men and women are judged when they're funny. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, for a lot of years, comedy was just for the boys. And obviously that's, that has changed a lot in movie, film, uh, TV, and stand, you know, stand-up, sketch, improv, and so on. But in the workplace, I just find, and there's some research suggesting that even when a woman is successful, so it's not a matter of on the failing side of things, but on the succeeding side of things, she doesn't tend to reap the benefits as much. And so that's, again, a little bit of my hesitancy to be too encouraging, Mm. because I I think that, that women, even when skilled, highly skilled, aren't always looked as favorably as, as a guy is. And so, you know, this is, these are sort of cautionary tales and I use it to set up the book and I use it to pivot away from what people automatically assume when they reach stick to business to be the message. I need to be funny. Yeah. (laughs) I I get your sense of responsibility that, you know, (laughs) this is, this is like a, sorry, I'm holding up the book here. Um, this is a, Potential weapon that you're unleashing on an unexpecting company. Everyone who reads this is going to go out there and start trying to crack jokes. Um, But I find humor to be, this is why I refer to the doggy play bow. I find humor to be not just about the actual joke. It is, when I say the doggy play bow, my my dog, when I see him in the park and I, I only I never had a dog as a child. No, it was fascinating to watch this. But I, do you know the dog does this thing where it 
basically yeah. he sees other dogs yeah. and it and it pushes its its arms down and pushes its head towards the floor and yeah. it sticks its bum up and mm-hmm. what that says to every other dog is i'm gonna pretend to bite you in a second yes. but i don't i don't mean it and mm-hmm. if you do the same to me we we don't mean this and you're safe here and you're safe to explore and you're you're safe to play around and and throw ideas and we're all friends here and um I actually even would extend that to the very British thing to keep saying sorry mm. to, to people. Like the Italians and the French and the Spanish, they kind of mock us for just saying sorry, sorry, sorry. And Mariah lives mm. here now and you, you probably recognize <laughs> this. All the like, time. <laughs> like someone could run over my foot with a, a shopping cart <laughs> you in would a apologize. supermarket and I'd apologize. <laughs> and I, actually Nish Kumar, who, who used to work here, we don't talk about famous friends, but uh, Nish Kumar, who used to work here, he's got this funny little sketch thing about, and I won't try and redo his sketch, but it's essentially that he sat on a bus and there's this very racist guy in front of him who turns around. Uh, he's ranting, you know, coming out of all his awful racist statements and he turns around and he faces Nish and, and Nish goes, and obviously he's Asian and he goes, sorry, uh, <laughs> like, why would you apologize to the racist? And actually that was the most British thing anyone could ever do. And he could be, he couldn't be more British than apologizing to a racist for being Asian, mm-hmm. you know? So it's already, he obviously delivers it much better than me, but just this idea that there's little things we do either telling jokes or, or, or the instinct to say sorry quickly to say, hey, mm-hmm. this is not an aggressive situation. You you ran over my foot, but I am not about to punch you. Yes. And we're, we're cool. We're cool. And so I'm not saying to any of my stuff, oh, you need to be, you need to be funny. But if we can immediately get to a point where it feels informal and you're safe here and I've done the, the doggy play bow, then we're, 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 we're free to, you're cool here. Absolutely. I love, I love the, the idea. I've never thought of it in that way. I mean, the roots of comedy are in physical play, you know, so, so we're not the only mammals who, who laugh Mm. and, and play, you know, so the, one of the most striking visuals that I ever had as I started studying comedy was this professor at the, at Washington state university tickling rats. (laughs) And so this idea that you can, so you, you basically put this sort of this detector that can, that can detect ultrasonic sound in their, in their cage. And then he sort of tussles with them. He sort of flips them over and rubs their belly and, and so on. And they make this sort of chirping sound. And, uh, and their research shows that that chirping sound is associated with positive emotion. Mm. But the thing that's even more fascinating now, of course, these are rats that are, familiar and comfortable with their captors, first of all. But what's fascinating is he will move his hand to the other side of the cage and the rats will chase after the hand and sort of try to put themselves underneath it. And the idea is that this, this physical threat that's not harmful you know, is a version of play fighting, tickling that, that we see with, we see at the park with the dogs, Mm -hmm. you know, we see it with, if you have children where they sort of want to be tickled, but don't want to be tickled. It's sort of this back and forth and so on. You know, I call these benign violations. That's the the research Mm -hmm. that we've done in, in the human research lab shows that, that regardless of the form of comedy, it has these two simultaneous elements, wrong yet. Okay. Threatening yet safe, uh, a violation yet benign. Uh, that's there. And so there's lots and lots of ways to create a violation, to create a threat. Misuse of words, for example, 
maybe it's maybe it's insulting your boss, mm-hmm. breaking a norm. And then there's lots and lots of ways to make it okay, to signal that it's a joke with a wink, with a nod, with a sarcastic tone, whatever that may, or just another play on words, right? Double entendre. There's two ways to interpret this world. One's naughty and one's nice. Mm -hmm. I think that you can facilitate that with context and managers can also facilitate that in terms of how do they react when they're teased? Right? Do they laugh? Do -hmm. they encourage it? Do they say they like it, but then their nonverbal suggest that they're unhappy with you. And as you know, the stakes can be high. This is the same person who's deciding on your compensation, <laughs> yep. your promotions, yep. <laughs> your tasks. I should <laughs> add, actually, that he, he, he immediately contacted me afterwards and went, oh, you're right, did I insult you? And I was like, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. It's like, yes, it's that's fine. right. So <laughs> anyway, so, so he wasn't sure. He wasn't sure. He did take a big risk. It's also why, it's why managers think they're much funnier than they are. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because people will politely laugh at their jokes. Right. Mm. Because that same person wants, is doing their compensation. So true. <laughs> <laughs> so true. I am Ricky Gervais. Don't you mean? So true. Thanks, Uh, so, so I think it can be done. It takes an adept hand. It takes a thoughtful approach. It takes creating the right context, a safe space, and then sometimes some negotiations and some debriefing should things, you know, go, go awry. Hmm. But I agree. If you can pull it off, boy, who doesn't, you know, what a, what a great way to facilitate positive emotion, which is connected to all these great benefits, especially creativity. What a great way to have people excited to come into work once they can come back to work. And certainly what is a great way to be able to give feedback in a way that's not threatening. So I'm partial to it. If I won you, if I won you back around to. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> only because only because that like you're checking a lot of boxes. And so what I would like to say is, yeah, if you could check those boxes, go for it. I just think the average manager can't do it. Mm. Yeah. And and they also have so many other bigger problems that um that if if you ask their employees, you know, is sense of humor the top of the list that you want fixed. <laughs> I, I think they're going to say something like, no, I want them to run an efficient meeting. Yeah, yeah. definitely. No, I get that. I guess um, I'm kind of blurring the lines between humor and, and just a sort of sense of informality. Yeah. Play. I like play. Yeah. A play and a play bow kind of thing. But I do, mm-hmm. I do always group those things together. That's why I was talking about the sorry thing, because it, it's not about being funny. It's just a quick, verbal tick to say things are okay everything's okay yeah and i i see that a lot with jokes it's like yeah it's, this is okay this is fine mm-hmm. carry on you know <laughs> it, it's got that kind of feel feel to it when, when i started my company up i started it up with, with my uncle and he's just such a sociable guy he's like such a such a connector he's the person everyone goes to at party you know the, the moment he's in a room it just people relax around him and actually i think my whole company is probably was seeded at the moment that I used to go to meetings with him mm. in, a, in a hospital and talk to them about software. But he would come along with me because we were running this company together and he just disarmed them from mm. the get-go. And he built rapport between us and those initial customers. That's frustrating that I didn't convince you on that, that <laughs> point. 
<laughs> yeah, think of it as conditional. Yeah, it is conditional. That that's fine. Yeah. So that, if you if you want me to say that it's okay for you to do this, I will say that. <laughs> okay. So that's the so I think like clearly the the fact that you've even thought about it as deeply as you had yeah. has suggested that you um, have the proper approach that you have the right approach. Yeah. And, um, and to the degree that you can be intentional about developing it, encouraging it, rewarding it and, um, and recognizing your limits, then by all means go for it, experiment with it, be quick to say, I'm sorry, be quick mm-hmm. to compliment and see how it goes. Yeah. I just, I'm just not sure that I want others to follow. Yeah. And the book, the book doesn't need to agree with me on that point, because obviously there's a lot of like, sort of methodology. This is the the thing, Peter, I really um, loved the book. It was only that one thing. Where, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm not a... Because no. actually I would prefer people to go out and grab your book because it is fantastic. I do love the... What do you love about it, Kevin? Tell me what, tell me what you love. Do you know what it resonated? What, what, <laughs> one of the things that, that it reminded me of is um, Keith Johnson's improv book. It's quite a famous Im- improvisation book. It's really quite old. It's like the 60s or 70s, I think. Okay. And it, it reminded me of that because it was written, well, in that case, it was written as a book just on improvisation and it mm-hmm. seemed to get picked up by business leaders and managers to say, actually, there are things in here about machine building, about the, the yes and mm-hmm. uh, approach. So, you know, never, never block what someone's doing, build on what they're doing. Don't be obstructive. Um, which actually remind me of things that are in how to win friends and influence people, you know, never criticize, condemn or complain. Mm-hmm. And those sort of mental models that you can take from those books are also apparent in here. The reversal, so the idea of, of flipping mm-hmm. something completely on its head. That's a, that's a Tim Ferriss thing, right? That's one of his mental models that he often talks about is what if I did the 180 degree opposite? I think I, I, I think I had that in the book and I took it out. So he did this way. Well, what if I do the opposite? And so he was, he was in one of these sort of just really tough, what you call smile and dial sales call, sale call kind of jobs. Mm. And so while everybody else was calling between nine and five, he would wait till after five o'clock and, um, and do his calls. And one of the things that he discovered is these execs that he was trying to get a hold of, you know, they're, they have no work-life balance. Right. So Mm -hmm. you call them at eight o'clock at night and their phone rings they often pick it up. Their, yeah. their secretary's home. Because gone home. Right, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And so, so, you know, that ended up working for him. And I think that that, I think that's a very nice example of, uh, of creativity and, and of in particular sort of thinking in, in opposites or thinking in, in reverse. And I do agree with you. I think that these, first of all, I don't think improv gets as much credit as it should as a form of comedy, mm. because the people who are really good at improv make it look so easy mm. that you don't realize how incredibly difficult it is to do and to do well. And um, I also think that it is, I think the average sort of business person is sort of heard of yes and, and recognize, recognize at least theoretically the importance of being encouraging and building on ideas and, and so on. 
And one of the things that I try to do in Stick to Business is to highlight some of those other improvisational tools, tactics, because businesses and training for business is so focused on the systematic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they're focused on creating rules and they're so focused on models and they're so focused on planning. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I teach in an MBA program and all of our courses are about sort of systematic thinking, planning, Mm -hmm. and so on. And yet business is so often improvised, Mm -hmm. improvisational, Mm -hmm. as demonstrated, especially by this pandemic, where the existing rules and structures and regulations and processes no longer worked anymore. And so we we hire people and we train people to be systematic thinkers. And then at least half the time they're having to be improvisers. Mm-hmm. We're improvising right now. Right. You know, yeah. we ha- I mean, we had some ideas that we wanted to talk about, but we're improvising right now. And so why not learn from the ultimate improvisers, the people who can create one of the most difficult products in the world, comedy, out mm-hmm. of nothingness, out of a mm-hmm. kernel of an idea. Mm. And so we have a tendency to celebrate these sort of lone geniuses, but really lone geniuses might be good at creating ideas, but, but you need group genius in order to execute those ideas and the execution rests on improvisation. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one of the examples that I, I really like is this notion that a team really benefits from diversity and inclusion. So obviously those are buzzwords right now. Um, And, and, but there's, there's a lot of different versions of diversity. The obvious ones we talk about are gender, age, ethnicity, and so on. But it doesn't, but it doesn't have to just be that it just has to be a diversity in perspective and opinion. And how is it that you can go about integrating that? Mm. And, Improviser. So, so there's this guy, Billy Merritt, and he, he co-wrote a book with, with another improviser at Upright Citizens Brigade named Will Hines. The title of the book is called Pirate Robot Ninja. Mm-hmm. And it's a taxonomy of improvisers. And essentially says, it's like, if you come to the world of imp- improv, you're, you're likely from the get-go to fit into one of two categories. You're either a pirate, you're this swashbuckling, you know, running out on stage, blowing things up, you know what I mean? This kind of big, big personality. Um, and we, we can think of comedians who are sort mm-hmm. of like that. Yeah. Or you're, you're a robot. You're much more analytical. You know, you pause, you think a little bit before, before speaking and acting. And their argument is if you have a stage full of pirates it's like a whirlwind, nothing gets done. If mm-hmm. you have a stage full of robots, the scene doesn't pop. You need both together, working together to make the perfect scene. And then the ninja idea is something to aspire to, which is a ninja can be a pirate when you need a pirate, can be a robot when you need a robot, can turn it on, turn it off, mm-hmm. um, and is a, is a matter of sort of development. Almost no one is a ninja from the very <laughs> the very beginning. And so I I really just like that idea a lot because it suggests there's not just one ideal type of employee. There are ideal employees 
And it's a matter of putting them together and having them work with a shared set of rules, perspectives, and belief that we're on a team. And that's where the inclusivity comes in. Your ideas are, are, are valued because it's, it's a process. I love that. That's really good. <laughs> I love that too. <laughs> she said it first yes. yeah i win <laughs> I, love, I love the idea of just kind of using extremes of personality in 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 anything like obviously it's fun to kind of have a mix of employees but there's a quite famous sort of user capture book in tech called uh, user stories applied it sounds, it sounds dry it's actually a great book but one of the suggestions in there is that you um Imagine how your software is used by extreme characters. So mm. what would Hitler look like using your software? And what oh, would, wow. what would, but then what would Father Christmas look like? You know, would he start giving, keep trying to give everything away for free? And, you know, and it actually ends up stretching. You consider all your normal users as well, You're like an administrator and a super administrator and, you know, yes. the end user and in our case, doctor or a nurse. But how would how would a psychopath use this and actually can find can find holes in security and yeah I love it. But obviously that's a really extreme kind of concept. But um, we 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 did some Myers Briggs, uh, you know, like the young young types and Myers Briggs and uh, team team building team roles stuff to try and see what balance we had in the team. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people's different approaches. I, I know not everyone goes in for the sort of Myers Briggs and young types because they they consider it. What did my neighbour call it? Uh, astrology for people who like to think they don't believe in astrology. <laughs> I like your neighbour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll make a case for Myers-Briggs and it's very difficult for me to make the case as uh, someone who got his PhD in a program that taught psychometrics. Mm -hmm. What I like about those tasks are they start a conversation about differences and about complementation. So even though the Myers-Briggs lacks what we call predictive validity, that is you can't really use it to make predictions about how people will behave, it allows it allows an organization to have a conversation around, we are different. Our personalities and our values are different, but that is, that is seen as a strength, not a weakness. Mm -hmm. So I think that those are often very good conversations to have and to acknowledge and for people to be aware of them. Nice. Can I, can I actually go back to your idea, this idea of this book about the sort of extreme users? Mm -hmm. I really like that idea. Um, so of course, what I would say is you should have a bunch of comics use your product and see if they can break it. Well, we did. We've had, a, we've had a stream of comedians. In fact, we have two stand-up comedians in our company at the moment and We've had, yeah, we've, we've had a lot of stand-up comedians. I think we're on a count of about six stand-up comedians who've worked for us. Well, that, that's, that is good because one is people who are, who are comedians, at least successful ones, are smarter than average. That's the one thing that we know as a predictor of sense of humor is intelligence because to create benign violations, you have to be quick-witted. Mm -hmm. You have to be knowledgeable mm -hmm. about the world. Right. You actually have to have EQ um, mm -hmm. to be able to then express them. Uh, the other one is that comics are, are naturally transgressive. They're, they're rule breakers, mm. you know, and they, they, they do it in a variety of, they don't normally fit into a normal factory corporate kind of structure, which let's be honest, the bigger a, a, an organization gets, the more structured it becomes because mm. it's the only way that you can really manage a large group of people is to be able mm. to slot them into buckets and to 
you know, give them particular titles and mm. roles and, and, and so on. And so the, the, the average funny person just really doesn't thrive in that kind of environment. Is that the link to the sort of uh, Dun- Dunbar number? Is that the correct time where you have like 150 people? I think Malcolm Gladwell talks about in the tipping point about so yeah that it, that it's coat, coat manufacturer that they only build 150 parking spaces in their in their buildings and once they once they fill up then they go and build another building because you can't keep the social connections yeah. yes that's right so once you go above that so so I mean that you know that has to do with like a, there's an evolutionary element behind that which is just we weren't built to have these huge expansive networks at least our sort of memory structure and our socialization is it doesn't lend itself to that. Now, luckily, you know, my phone can hold a lot of contacts. And so <laughs> I can I can still record keep, you know, my extensive network, but in terms of tracking that informally um becomes very difficult of, above some number who knows exactly what the number is and it probably depends a little bit on the person. But certainly what one thing that we know about schools and organizations is they're designed to get people to behave in certain ways. They get they're, to get people in lockstep. Yeah. And I think that's probably fine for your, you know, your accounting and IT folks. It's just not clear it's good for your creative teams. Mm. And my guess is that your stand-up comics or your comedian types at your organizations are likely to be more on the creative side of things. At least that's probably where they thrive best. But yeah, I don't want to miss. I don't want to misspeak. I mean, it's quite small company and yeah. um, interfe- being a geek, uh, I'm kind of defensive of the idea that actually technology and software engineers are quite creative people. I, I think you're right. I think, I think any sort of engineer should think of him or herself as, an, as a creative person because mm. that's really what their job is. So my, my definition of creativity is an original appropriate solution to a problem. Are you solving the problem and are you doing it in a way that others haven't before? Right. And that's where an edge is. You know, this idea of, of formalizing, though, isn't necessarily bad. So you had mentioned reverse the reversal. So that that's chapter one in the book. Mm-hmm. I'm quite keen on the reversal. So for, for the listener, reversal is just, it's just producing an opposing perspective. And so, um, so I opened that chapter with a story about Chris Rock. Chris Rock in his Netflix special, Tambourine, talks about bringing his daughter to junior high and the vice principal on stage speaking to all the students and all the parents about the strict no bullying policy mm-hmm. that the school has. And Chris Rock said, I immediately wanted to take my daughter out of the school. <laughs> and he, he goes on in Chris Rock's fashion to talk about how we need bullies, how the world needs bullies, mm-hmm. that bullies do half the work. Teachers do half the work and bullies do the other half of the work, which is to prepare <laughs> young people for a world yeah. that's difficult. Yeah. I can see Nassim Taleb Shouting out about anti-fragility. You know, yeah, like, exactly. These kids, they're not so fragile when they emerge <laughs> out the other end. Indeed, yes. And so, you know, he gets an applause break and so on. So he takes the thing. We all, you know, at first blush, we all agree bullies are bad. And he makes a case for why bullies are good. 
Hmm. So he thinks in reverse and it's comedy 101. Good, great comics naturally think in reverse. Now, how do you get, how do you get the average person to think in reverse? That's not easy to do. So one of the things that I've, I've done, I have a workbook that you can download off of petermcgraw.org that has this exercise. You could do what I call shit storming or the HR friendly term stick storming <laughs> um, like it. <laughs> where you do a, a reverse brainstorm where you actually bring people together and purposely brainstorm truly terrible ideas. Oh God, that sounds fun. Mm, I'm not going to lie. I want to get on that. <laughs> <laughs> it is incredibly fun. So it's incredibly fun. So it's a great warm-up activity for any creative process. Mm. It removes the natural tendency to critique ideas, which is why the average person doesn't thrive in a brainstorming session, right? Because they're afraid their idea is not good enough. So they self-censor. Exactly. But when you're when you're shitstorming, what's gonna happen? Mariah's gonna say, that's not that bad an idea. Yeah. Right. Like that's not a really a terrible critique, you know, that's Mm -hmm. that's there. And then the beautiful thing is sometimes Mariah goes, you know, that idea is so crazy. It just just might work. (laughs) Just might work. Yeah. It just (laughs) might work. And so I I so so that is a formalized process that's fun and that might uncover an idea, a powerful idea that that others aren't. So I I use the example of these two Brooklyn-based entrepreneurs who are they're in the smartphone market. So how do you outsmart Apple and Samsung in the smartphone market, right? Like it just seems impossible to do. And while these guys don't try to do that, they think in reverse, they don't create a smartphone. They create a dumb phone. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, the idea is that, you know, it seems like everybody in the world wants to be more connected, but there's a group of people, Peter McGraw included, (laughs) who wants to be less connected. Mm. at least wants to be less connected at certain times. So I got one of the entrepreneurs on the phone and and what he said to me is you don't need to bring a microcomputer to the farmer's market, right? That does not enhance the farmer's market experience. Zoom that we're on now uh, has got what I would call an anti-feature when you pay more for it. And uh, it struck me as quite a funny thing that they, when you pay more, you, it removes the 40 minute limit on meetings. And I'm like, ah. that's not, that's not a good thing. <laughs> that's not a benefit. <laughs> <laughs> it hinders. And that's what you've just explained there. The kind of reverse it approach is just chapter one of that book. And uh, so it just gets better and better from there. Mm. <laughs> I, I haven't said it enough. I love this book. It was bought for me for my birthday by my little five-year-old daughter. Which you're kidding me? That's fantastic. Gosh, she's good. Well, actually, it was quite funny because I was I was looking at Solo, your podcast, ah. uh, and I was, you know, kind of what's in it for me, Mister SUV family man. Uh, I kind of see it as like people on motorbikes kind of weaving through the traffic <laughs> around me, and here you are, kind of like singing the benefits of. Of solo, so the yeah, so the so for the listeners who don't know what the hell you're talking about, I I've done, um, you know, I actually have to tell you, I probably wouldn't have done this new podcast if I hadn't writ- written Stick to Business. Mm-hmm. And so this is a podcast that I launched earlier this year. Um, it's called Solo: The Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable Life. So it's basically a celebratory approach to single living, whether it be for now or forever. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm actually. 
the week that we are taping this, my 50th episode is coming out. So oh, I'm wow. having like a little mini celebration. Yeah, congratulations. So, yeah. Thank you. And um, this was, you know, so, so obviously this is non-normative, you know, so we, we live in a world that, that tolerates singles, may feel mm-hmm. bad for them, but certainly is not interested in celebrating singlehood, mm-hmm. especially for us middle-aged types. I, I have to tell you, I love the visual of the big SUV rumbling down the highway and the motorbikes. <laughs> I'm, I'm stealing this, Kevin. I'm stealing. Well, that's kind of how I feel. You know, it's difficult. I listened to your podcast and um, and I was a little bit hesitant to show my my wife that I was listening to a podcast called <laughs> Singles Solo. Porn. You were listening to Singles Porn. <laughs> yeah. She's like, what are you what are you looking at? I was just looking looking at hot girls in my area. Then, you know, that's, that's a more legitimate excuse for what, what I'm doing right now. But I I did find it really interesting. You had two guests on there that were it was yeah, I think it was the last one. Sorry, I don't know their names, but they they were living this one wonderful sort of vagabonding. Oh yes, digital nomads. Yes, and obviously as digital, I'm like, oh, that sounds so nice. <laughs> but I was making notes about things to talk to you about, and I was writing down solo and I was talking about that. And then my little five year old daughter come over, almost like a kind of like antibody turning up to a virus. <laughs> she kind of came over and went. She picked up stick to business. She went. Who bought this for you, Daddy? And, then, and she went, I did, didn't I? I was like, Yeah, and I love it. It's a great book. So she bought it for my birthday, but it was almost like to reinforce the fact that <laughs> yes. you've got your family, man, and you've got a lovely, lovely life. I was going to say, I, I feel like it can be inspired by it. There's a BBC, I think it's a BBC program called Race Across the World, where these, these couples, you know, they, they zoom from the UK to Singapore. And my wife Mm. and I have been watching it and we were like, that's inspired me. Let's go and do that. And then you think, oh, logistics. uh, The kids are in school and then that's the year when they do their exams. And uh, we can't really just take them out of school at any sort Mm -hmm. of time. But we we managed to work out that in three years time, they'll be just in the right years. to 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 line up and actually we are planning on doing like a four month trip from the uk and to be inspired by these people who are like the motorbikes and zipping through and seem to be carefree and don't i don't know they obviously don't have to hold down a job whoever these people are (laughs) yeah we were inspired by it so just wondering you know your solo podcast maybe it does have i can still ride a motorbike occasionally can't i Indeed. Yeah, of course. Actually, so so I have so many ideas swirling through my head listening to you. Um, first of all, thank you for the kind words and the encouragement. It's I'm going to I'll connect some of these ideas back to the book for a moment, if I may. Mm. So regarding your your Singapore idea, um, I ha- so stick to business starts out being very focused sort of on on kind of marketing and product at the beginning, and then it sort of transitions. It's almost two books in one. It almost mm-hmm. transitions into this more of a professional development, career management side of things. And in it, I have a section talk about taking a sabbatical. You know, as, a, as an academic, I have the great privilege of being able, able to every seven years take a sabbatical, to step away from the day-to-day, to get some perspective, to read books that I wouldn't normally read, to write and think about things, and to sort of plan out the next seven years of of research topics and, and so on. And both of my sabbaticals, I completed books in them. Mm, wow. And I encourage the average person to think about how they might be able to take a sabbatical. And I'm not willing to accept the fact that they say, I can't do it. 
I just, I think that if you, you, it takes some planning, it takes some doing, it may take some sacrifice, but I think that it can be done. Now, I do agree with you that when you're solo, it's easier to do than when, when you have a family structure. But I, but I do think that it can be done in terms of, it just may take you three years to plan right. it. Yeah. You know, it just might take three years to plan it. And I think that having a sabbatical, you know, we think about, I, I, I talk, I, I'm really fascinated by rest and recovery. I think the average person, the average high achiever is worn out. They're not tired, they're worn out. And we don't do enough to allow ourselves to bounce back, to nourish ourselves with sleep, good food, fresh air, sand under our toes, um, sunlight, to, um, to be good, a good parent, a good boss, a good creative type, and so on. And so you can imagine you can do this within a day. You find time in the day to refresh yourself. Mm -hmm. So this is in the work hard or hardly work chapter. Mm -hmm. And it's inspired by the fact of that a lot of comedians and other creative types find downtime, release themselves from their obligations in order to regenerate, so to speak. We can do that within a day. We can do that within a year. You know, so you think about vacations and, and I'm, I'm jealous of the Europeans. I think mm. the Europeans do vacations, holiday. So much mm-hmm. better than Americans, I'll be honest. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Mm. It's, not even, it's not even close. But you can also do it in a decade, you know, in, in, that, in that sense. Now, of course, like it might be four weeks in a year, but in a decade, it might be a half a year or a year, you know, like that kind of thing. And I just think that that has a, that could just have a profound effect on perspectives, on ideas. It can shake you loose. It can allow you to create new habits, rituals, um, and so on. So, so, so that's the first thing that as, as I respond, the second one is, as I said earlier, is I need to stick to business in order to, to release solo in part because solo is transgressive. It goes against the norm. And it was scary for me to do that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I have a mini lesson. So in between the chapters in the book, I have these little mini lessons. Yeah. They weren't big enough ideas to be an entire chapter, but they weren't small enough that I felt like I could leave them on the cutting room floor. And one of the mini lessons I talked about is an audience of one. That if you want to create something truly novel, you might need to create something that is the perfect thing for yourself. Um, and, and the idea essentially is you have, you have unique perspectives, needs, wants, desires. And if you can create something that fixes that, you can then perhaps sell it, share it with other, you know, in a world of nearly 8 billion people, there might be a lot of other people like you. Mm-hmm. And so what I did with Solo was I created the podcast that I wish I had 25 years ago. Mm. As I was starting to get the inkling, and certainly I wish I had 12 years ago, Mm. where I was having 25 years ago, I had the inkling that, ah, this marriage kid thing's probably not right for me. Mm. And 12 years ago, I was certain (laughs) that it wasn't right for me. Mm -hmm. And so then suddenly when, when you're in a world where everybody is following this path and the world's sort of gently or not so gently pushing you along it, facilitating that and you're going to break from it, where are the resources? Where are the like-minded people? Where are the lessons? And so I set out to, um, to do that. And I had to then take my backstage life, the conversations that I would have had around the dinner table or at a bar, you know, with, with um, friends and loved ones who, who I know and trust, and I had to be able to put them out in the world and be authentic and mm. be my true self right. and be unapologetic 
mm-hmm. about this. And comics are so good at that, mm-hmm. right? They're so good at telling you the things that they're bad at, that they struggle with, that are embarrassing, mm-hmm. that are non-normative. And they do it obviously for comedic effect. I'm just trying to do it to be able to speak to people who feel like no one's speaking to them. That's that's really interesting how it, yeah. how it connects up solo to stick to business and mm-hmm. that concept of an audience of one. I love it. Indeed. So the benign violation theory, mm-hmm. um, it, you cover it more kind of in the humor code, your, your first book, but essentially it's that the, there are rules in society that, sorry, you could probably explain it better than I can <laughs> briefly. <laughs> but there, are, there are rules in society and, and if you break them and you break them in a benign way, then that is essentially what's funny. So someone falls over and they didn't hurt themselves or mm-hmm. they make a pun so that it's a rule of language. And then they, have I got that right, Professor? You did. You do have it right. <laughs> Yay. And so what, what, what got me introduced to you in a, in a little Twitter discussion was I saw somebody say, um, you know, what we laugh at and what we tolerate in our own groups reflects our politics. And what we what we're intolerant of in another group, and what we don't find funny, um, dictates our politics too. Because we're, we're yes. basically saying that's that's the out group, that's the in group. I I find politics generally toxic, so I don't I don't tend to touch on it. But I find the co- the concept in interesting in itself, especially if if you ever read um, Jonathan Haidt, Haidt, mm-hmm. Haidt's uh, The Righteous Mind where he talks about people's different framework of ethics. And I was just wondering, is that a reciprocal thing? So what, what, what breaks the rules in a benign way is what's funny, but then what we're laughing at can reveal our, our, our politics. And when I saw Dave Chappelle sticks and stones and you saw that difference between the critics who are probably kind of more left-leaning or, or have certain rules that they don't wish to have violated. And then you see the, uh, a kind of audience that's probably doesn't share that same set of politics that they just found it funny because it, they, they weren't particularly uh, almost sort of revered rules, things that can't be broken. The fun thing about Dave Chappelle is he's uncancelable. Mm-hmm. You know, he's one of the few Americans who, by virtue of his perspective, his charisma, you know, what he's done, that he is sort of untouchable, at least at this moment. And I think that there's enough folks who are a little, they're, they're starting to be concerned. They're concerned about the right and they're starting to be concerned about the left and about the far ends of those, mm. of those two. The critics are cancelable. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, to not pan this, uh, this special is puts them at risk, so to mm. speak. But the audience and his audience in particular found it obviously refreshing. And you're speaking truth to a different type of power, right? Mm. You know, um, in, in that way. But I do think that it is impossible to think about comedy without thinking about the values and beliefs and the lifestyle of the audience. So to move past what we call demographics and into, you know, our world, which is psychographics. Mm -hmm. um, What are the things, you know, the idea is that you have two people, they're the same age, they're the same gender, they live in the same place, you know, but one's, let's say, right and one's left, you know, or whatever Mm -hmm. it might, whatever that thing might might be. It doesn't have to be politics per se, but politics are so, so strikingly different at this point. And that 
this very same joke makes one of them laugh and the other one completely outraged. Right. Mm. And so that makes it very difficult to be broadly funny. It makes it nearly impossible to have a political podcast that is equal opportunity. Mm. Because what ends up happening is half of your jokes land with one group and the other half lands with the other group. And, And so backing out this idea of benign violations, when you transgress, you have to be able to be adept at finding a way to transgress in a way that's appropriate. That's okay. Mm. And when you don't, you've just transgressed. It's why comedy is so targeted. It's why mm. you can actually learn about positioning and as and, and a good reminder about the value of understanding your customers. Mm. Because comics are the, are the master, they're master marketers yeah. in yeah. terms of finding a way to make their customers super, super happy. And they don't care about their non-customers. Yeah. I could well believe that. So the, yeah. the sort of market engagement, sort of stakeholder yeah. engagement, these are the people it's going to resonate with. I don't know if you saw um, Bill Burr on Saturday Night Live recently that was doing, doing, doing the rounds, but I thought that was an interesting thing because he basically flipped that in a way that he, he had the, the kind of white women's arm blocked behind because <laughs> they couldn't be outraged by it. So he was appealing to a different demographic, but they, the very demographic that would normally be insulted by it couldn't because the whole joke was about the fact that they would be insulted. So in, in stick to business, I call this create a chasm. You know, I, I, this idea that, that, um, comics, they just know that if, if in a world that in a world of people, some who like hot tea and some who like iced tea. So in the UK, folks love your hot tea, you know, but if I tried to make everyone happy by serving warm tea, no one's happy, <laughs> mm. right. you know, and Bill Burr's not the ideal person to do a monologue on Saturday Night Live because he's one of the best people at creating a chasm. He's yeah. going to give you hot tea and he doesn't care if you don't want, don't want it because, you know, there's enough of his fans who want hot tea Right. Yeah. that's there. And so it's a good reminder. I mean, I think that, the, that your listeners have an interesting puzzle because if they run hospitals, that is as close to a world where everybody, they have to serve everyone right. in mm. some way. And so that, that I think is a, true, is a true puzzle and a true challenge. Of course, what I, what I think needs to end up happening is to figure out within the hospital, where are the hot tea pockets? Where are the cold tea pockets? Thank you, Peter. Greatly appreciate it, though. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really fun. Oh, I, I love the book and people should go out and buy it. It's really good. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. We thoroughly enjoyed having you and hope you were able to take away Peter McGraw's practical advice on how to use the process of humor to propel you or your organization into success. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week.